You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. I got this new car a couple months ago, and it's a manual transmission. And every time I shift gears, I think about my dad. First gear is for those first moments after soccer practice, when he'd start the Mazda and ask what CD I wanted to listen to on the drive home. I always picked the greatest Western themes, because I liked imagining the leather on the boots of the cowboys in the songs, stretching and bunching like the leather on the gear shift. I used to pretend that we were cantering past sun-baked mesas instead of the Bradley Shopping Center. Second gear is for the way he used to slow down outside Video Vault so we could get a good look at the new movie posters in the window. Third is for the first time he let me drive us to Atlantis Pizza on Friday night to pick up our takeout order. Fourth is for the time Grandpa fell, and Poppy was too tired to make the eight-hour drive from Alexandria to Ithaca for the third time that month. So he let me take the Mazda on the highway for the first time, and he fell asleep. He woke up to the sound of the engine roaring, because I was so excited to be driving that I was doing 80 and forgot to shift into fifth. And fifth is for the night I went out to the Mazda to practice shifting in the driveway, and smelled the perfume, and realized everything was about to change. From WALTFM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And from the beginning on this show, I've been fascinated by the phenomenon of family members whose presence lingers even in their absence. I haven't been in a car with my father for years, and yet he's there every time I put the key in the ignition. On today's show, we're going to meet another father who's always there, even when he's not. There's no accounting for charisma. The fool was a man's man and a lady's man, too. Silver fox, sly dog. He wore full quill ostrich boots, glided his starched Mexican wedding shirt skinny ways through the room. After the break, Kimberly King Parsons reads her short story, Foxes. Stay tuned. happening happens in deep woods, or so my daughter tells me. Her plot lines. In the deep woods, someone is chasing. Someone else is getting hacked. Hatchets are lifted, brought down, down, down. Men stutter blood onto snow. A cast of animals, some local, some outlandish, show up to feast on the bits. The bitty bits, she'll say, the tasty remainderings. Good luck diverting her. Good luck correcting or getting a word in once she gets going. It's gruesome, but this type of storytelling, I've been assured, is perfectly normal among children her age. I have a fat stack of books concerned with the inner lives of little girls. I have glossy pamphlets, full-color articles I've taken from waiting rooms. Her stories may be distasteful, but my daughter is happiest describing dark, spattered worlds. Routine is what's important. All the experts agree. Stability. 
So tonight is the same. Woods it is, I say, when she takes me by the wrist. I'm the first to admit it. I tune her out. I know there are foxes in her stories. I know there are men. She misses the dogs, maybe. She misses her father. She's an excitable kid, prone to rushed speech. Truthfully, she spits. I'm told this mess is evidence of a rich mind. Doctors say it, teachers. My girl has strands of dazzling beads hidden in that throat. She pulls them up from somewhere rich, way in the back. The tent she's fashioned is small and drab, a sagging thing posted by a pair of bar stools. Soiled, pulled straight from our beds, these drooping sheets are my daughter and myself layered, fitted, and flat. She scurries inside, whistles for me. I bunch up and crawl through, hem in hand, nude hose flashing, nude pumps kicked off. The air inside is damp, trapped and sharp from her socked feet. My cheap and not cheap perfumes mix and float. I'm taking too long to settle. My daughter's big wet eyes are over there in the dark where I can't see them, rolling at me while I struggle. My friction drags dust and old fur up from the carpet. I've been meaning to vacuum, but the machine is in the upstairs closet, heavy with a full bag, a whole skein of orange yarn caught around one of the bristles. My daughter sighs. Patience is a muscle, I remind her. Hers is puny, a weak slick of lavender. My knees don't bend how they used to. My head is doming the roof. Her flashlight clicks on, catches a universe of grit and leftover dog. There's Bitbit and Rowdy and Poco turning in the air. Specks of my daughter and me, of my fool ex-husband. Our old family, filthy and granular. Ready, she says. Deep in the woods, the night is running. From whom, I ask my daughter. From let me tell it, she says. She's not going to like it, but I've forgotten something crucial, an important part of our routine. Half a second, I say. I reverse scoot, wreck against a bar stool, threaten the entire design. My daughter hisses. Bass awkward is what the fool would call this maneuver, and he wouldn't be wrong. I'm quick at the wet bar. A dirty glass is pretty clean when you're the only one who uses it, when you enjoy the same drink every time. There's scarlet lipstick gobbed on the rim, all me. I get back in the tent before my daughter's feelings are hurt. Her light catches cut crystal in my hand, scatters blue and yellow sparks. Sherry, I say. It doesn't need to be said, but I like the word. A secretary's drink, a middle-class nightcap. She knows I'm finished forever with the red-topped bottles and the black-topped bottles, the plastic bottles with tops I lost, bottles that left clear sludge in every coffee mug in this house. My daughter beams my face like a cop. I take a sip, dainty, then lift the sheet, break the seal. I push my drink under, outside but not away. This is me being responsible. I tuck myself in at the wrist, a cold hand out to touch the beaded glass. Just sherry. By all means, I tell her, go on. My daughter's teeth are gray with white flecks. When she tells, foam gathers in her corners, drips in ribbons under her chin. She spews. My only job is not to flinch. Flashlit, she looks nothing like me. 
Deep in the woods, the night is running. He will do whatever it takes to get back home. Her teeth are my fault. Weak Denton on my side of the tree. Our photo albums are full of snarled smiles. Gum disease going back through the ages. White sores and also clicky jaws. People predisposed to clench and do damage even as they slept. Plus, my daughter's precious grape soda is corrosive, I'm told. I push water and milk, but she fights me. She may not be pretty, but my girl's brain is just fine. It is. She dodged the worst genes somehow. Her father, the fool, was a man who broke the binding of the biggest ever book of party jokes, kept the glue-crusted pages paper-clipped or rubber-banded, dog-eared in his glove compartment, crammed into his blue jeans. The fool said, what's black and white and wait, wait, then fumbling, dull flipping. I'm not much better. At my daughter's age, I folded my failures into textbooks, blamed broken chalk for my public mistakes. Even now, I count the months on my knuckles and navigate the world by making an L out of one hand. I've got country smarts, the fool used to say, his arm deep in some majestic carcass he'd tracked for days and shot for fun. It's not the fault of the deplorable towns where the fool and I grew up, him in the bleak piney woods near the penitentiary, me up where Texas bludgeons Oklahoma in a county known for making glue. Both of us were jaundiced preemies. Both of us were nursed on evaporated milk instead of formula, sucked on toys coated with lead paint. Whether it's nurture or nature, for people like the fool and me, there is a long beat between learning something and knowing it. For us, answers come later, when we're far away from the question, if they come at all. He makes money, lots of it, which obscures his deficiencies. I overcompensate, read what I can, take expert advice. At least I know what I don't know, which is more than I can say for the fool. Deep in the woods, the night is running. He will do whatever it takes to get back to his family. The woods are full of enemies, hooded men setting traps, wearing black cloaks, men with needle-nose pliers. But the night is unstoppable. He has been on the move for so long. He has leaped out of snares, set fire to cloaked men. He has turned pliers around on the bad guys, ripped their eyelids off in self-defense. I'm not sure how my daughter managed it, but in this altogether different deplorable town, awful for nicer reasons, spring breakers and prefab houses, eggy smelling tap water, she is the best and brightest in her young class. I've got a bumper sticker that says, ask me about my honors student. She comes home with her backpack full of flashcards, arms cuffed and rolled up poster board. She taught the dogs, when we still had the dogs, to sit in Spanish. Eureka, she shrieks three, four times a night. This house is nothing like the mobile homes the fool and I grew up in, full of boilerplate poverty and the lazy rage that comes with it. Me fighting my sisters for stolen ketchup packets, the fool dunking his dingy little brothers in weak old bathwater. My girl has a writing desk and an electric pencil sharpener. She lists endangered species over alphabet soup says she will be an architect and a veterinarian and an astronaut and a mommy. Shampoo-horned, she sings a song of South American capitals, sketches the water cycle on a steamy shower door. 
When I'm toweling her off, I trace cursive letters on her back, sweet little notes just for her. No matter how fast I spell them out, she never misses a word. Through those teeth, my daughter tells me about baobab trees. Have you heard of our ecosystem? She asks when I tuck her in. Have you heard of my inner beauty and my outer beauty? Deep in the woods, the night is lost. He has been hunted for so long, running and running, but he has not come to the edge of the woods in all this time. He worries that he has been going in circles or in the wrong direction. The knight will do whatever it takes to get back to his child, but he needs a new plan. He knows he must leave some sign of himself behind. Can I borrow breadcrumbs? My daughter asks. From the one with those kids and the oven witch? Of course, I say, thrilled to see her comprehension and recall at work. Take whatever you need. I don't dare check it now, but outside the tent, my drink is almost empty. You can tell by the temperature of the glass. The night leaves a trail, focaccia and croutons, big hunks of Wonder Bread. Fairy tale bullcrap, her father would say, were he here. The fool believed himself to be a master of deep woods. In real life, he'd say, people bend branches to show where they've been. There's no accounting for charisma. The fool was a man's man and a lady's man too. Silver fox, sly dog. He wore full quill ostrich boots, glided his starched Mexican wedding shirt skinny ways through the room. His quick smile propped up dimples stitched in deep rawhide. A big tipper, a southern gent. He was good in bars, good in places that muffled him. Those terrible jokes, the Helen Kellers, and the knock-knocks, so many stupid blondes. The fool and I argued. We were most brutal in cars, coming from or heading toward the next humiliation. We fought about women and we fought about men. At parties, I talked small with strangers and double-fisted drinks before I went looking. I'd find the fool in a dark room, his face caught by the light from a refrigerator door, a passing car, the party-goer or hostess turning, buttoning, zipping. Honey baby, he'd say to me, cornered, where have you been all my life? Take me drunk, I'm home, with the fool on his knees in the coat room, belly up in the bushes when I went for the car. He was much older with a fortune coming, an oil well he dangled when I pretend packed my bags or sat crying on a suitcase. By then there was the daughter, diapered and snapped, gummy and drooling, strapped into a car seat out in the hall. I was 23 with a cesarean scar and a court reporting certificate. The fool paid our mortgage, had a trust fund for his only child. I wasn't going anywhere. Come back, baby. Baby, please come back, he crooned. One weekend, the fool went on a bender and smashed every light in this house. I spent my Sunday screwing in bulbs. Hey, the fool said from our bed, still drunk. How many U's does it take? Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Ghost Family, if you like what you hear on the podcast, I hope you'll take a moment to consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. I know it might seem strange for me to ask for your financial support when you hear ads during the breaks of our show, but the truth is, while I am grateful for those sponsorships— They don't come close to covering the cost of doing this work at the level you expect. And that's where the kindred spirits come in. 
for just $5 a month, they get the satisfaction of knowing they're keeping the mics hot here at WALT-FM. Plus, they get cool bonus episodes every month, featuring exclusive content you won't hear anywhere else. This month, they're getting to hear an interview I did with the author of the story you're listening to right now, Kimberly King Parsons, about, among other things, why she calls this the hardest story she's ever written. Kindred Spirits also get early access to our new episodes and hear them ad-free. If you're already a Kindred Spirit, thank you so much for your support. And if you're not, and you have the means, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash familyghosts. Deep in the woods, the breadcrumbs aren't really working. The fool said he was sweating like a whore in church. Could I open a window now and again? He was so hungry he could eat the crotch out of a rag doll, suck the cunt from a low-flying duck. Would it kill me to pop him a cold beer? How about cracking an egg for a change? The fool was no saint and I was no homemaker. We could have afforded a housekeeper, a personal chef, but the fool wanted me to hone my skills. I drank to keep up, but I was no drinker, not yet. My talent was sleeping it off. I brought hangover cures into bed with me, ginger ale with a splash of Tabasco and an effervescent tablet, the glass seething on the bedside table. Mice showed up, chewed holes through the sleeves of my saltines, left droppings on the silk pillowcases, my marble vanity. Loose gems, I told myself, black pearls. I wore a sleep mask and didn't mind. I dozed until three, hobbled to a lawn chair I'd transplanted in the shower. I was a lightweight, a pretty young thing, dressed to the nines by the time the fool came home. He'd walk through the door, hungry after hunting. He'd say, sister, this broom ain't gonna push itself. Deep in the woods, the animals are helping. The night whistles and out they come, hordes of bears and birds and rabbits and foxes. My daughter stops her story for fox facts. Did I know that foxes hunt alone, that they walk on their toes? I use this opportunity to answer her cheerfully as I slip out of the tent, like I have heard my phone buzz, like I have some small pressing task. I do know about foxes, though I encourage her to continue with her list. I'm the one who selected Everything Fox, a children's guide, from the library. I'm the one who has been reading it to her. I'm back under the sheets right away. The night, I say, chipper. I'm checking her face to see if the bottle registers. I've put it next to me like a pet. With the animal's help, the knight knows he is heading in the right direction, but people keep getting in his way. Now he has his knee on somebody's throat is cutting out somebody's floppy purple tongue. He is feeding that tongue to a fox. Did I know a fox can hear a man's watch ticking 40 yards away? That foxes don't shiver? That a group of foxes is called a skulk? Someone else is coming down the dark wooded path. The knight is so brave and strong, he will kill the whole world to get back to his daughter. Of course he will. The fool picked out the dogs, but our daughter gave them names. Two of them were rangy and energetic, hot-nosed breeds that could be trained on any scent. 
The other one was squat with soft ears, a short snout for mouthing dead birds. The fool would go away with this pack for weeks at a time, return with a truck bed full of bloody fur or feathers, depending on the season. Even as a tiny thing, my daughter never seemed to mind slaughter. The fool would sit her on the workbench in the garage while he hacked and sawed, talked about his deep respect for the natural world. I kept the dogs indoors after he left, because that's where they'd always been and because a child psychologist told me to. My daughter insisted she'd take full responsibility, but of course I ended up doing everything. Filling the food and water bowls, putting flea drops between shoulder blades, hiding heartworm pills and hunks of cheese. For a time, I tried to pretend they were my dogs. I didn't mind the two trackers. They barked at solicitors and slept near my daughter's bed. But the tender-mouthed one was a real problem. He'd shit in the kitchen and claw at the hardwood. He'd roam the halls at night, whining for the fool. I told some lies. What I said was, your father loves you to bits. Your father is busy, but he is always thinking of you. Your father would visit, but he is living on the other side of the world. He would call, but he is in another time zone, is in a place with poor reception, has lost and broken his phone, has had it stolen. There's no mail over there, no stamps to buy, nothing coming in or out. Bitbit and Rowdy and Poco went to live in the country. You were sweet and smart and definitely not extremely strange. You are lovable and deserving of love. Everybody is. When it's deep in the woods and the night stabs another man in the lung with a pencil just because and the air seeps out in an eek, is there any better sound? My daughter wants to know. I pour myself a very reasonable pour. I know about the stepped-on cracker in the dining room, the clots of mud around little shoes in the front hall. Of course I do. Those messes aren't new. I notice them every day, several times a day. But then I flash on the full vacuum bag, the upstairs closet, how heavy, the bristles, the orange skein. Children can't see grime. I read that, that they don't recognize dirt as separate from the thing that is dirty. So why bother? In the deepest, darkest woods, the knight cuts out a man's liver and tosses it to a fox. He cuts off two ears, fox, fox. He rips out a larnix as a snack for a wolf. Two larnixes. I believe it's pronounced larynx, I say gently, refilling my glass. With nothing to hunt, the dogs became carpet barges, fat and begging for food. They stank and were noisy, and my daughter had lost interest in them, or seemed to, so I kept them locked in the laundry room. They were rambunctious and too much trouble to walk, so I'd take them outside one by one, straight to a tree and back. They dozed on big pillows, whined and scratched. On rare occasions when I encouraged my daughter to play with them in our small enclosed garden, and she had to be forcefully encouraged every time. They would run like crazy, knocking into one another and her, clawing into the dirt with their two long nails, a frenzy of ecstatic barking. My daughter would soon get bored and want to come back inside, but it was nearly impossible for her to get a handle on the dogs. They'd evade and dodge, frothy tongues out, smiling the way dogs smile. Eventually, I'd be tasked with wrangling them, 
jerking their choke chains, dragging them back to their dark cell. Deep in the woods, the knight is fashioning an ornament for his friends, the animals. One he will mount like a star to the highest tree. It will be made from the severed hands of his enemies. This is no easy task, my daughter says. She pantomimes the dissection, grunts to demonstrate the effort. It seems to me the knight is misusing his time, that he could stop with the disgusting detours if he's in such a rush to get back to his kid. A twig snaps. Someone is coming down the dark wooded path. It is yet another man, cloaked, carrying a piece of razor wire. Maybe you can guess where my daughter is headed with this. The hooded man is a zombie, she says. No friend at all. Zombie why, I say. How? Annoyed, she informs me that these are new characters, that her plot has twisted. What about his daughter, I ask, pouring myself a lovely pour. You've left a lot of holes. The knight and the zombie fight in a heap like dogs, storybook dogs that spin around and around until they turn to butter. I read her that one. But these two do not turn into butter. They blend and melt together until they are indistinguishable, until one dizzy cowboy is all that is left, naked, bleeding out at the base of a tree. Isn't that a little sloppy, I say? Things have changed since I last freshened my drink. My girl's stories are stories only in the loosest sense. The night is no longer present. I need clarification. She glares, goes on, gives another butchered hand to the animals. Safety scissors are involved. The webbing between dead fingers must be sliced for some reason. I don't always need to follow her logic. The cutting is the point, the ripping apart. Ding dong is what the fool called our daughter. Dingus. What you doing, dingaling? He would ask. But what a genius the girl was even then, rolling over, sitting up, pulling herself to stand by our pant legs, propelling herself around the coffee table. There was no real tether between the two of them. My girl's glories wasted and unnoticed. She doesn't need him now either. She's well on her way to growing up becoming a real person. She has preferences she's come to on her own, sophisticated tastes. For example, she is crazy for artichoke hearts and capers. Capers. There are tricks to coping with a surly person you've brought into the world. Focus on the positive. Maintain a cheery outlook. Relish small personal pleasures. Because of the teeth, my daughter looks like she's been drinking red wine. I swear she hasn't. Are you blacked out now? The fool wanted to know. How about now? It was one of his jokes, one of his insults. I could match him shot for shot, but not without consequence. Lost keys, broken ribs, a cue ball I tried to bite like an apple. Did I have fun? I had to ask him. Did I? Then the girl was born and things changed not at all. We went about our business with babysitters. Beth's and Bonnie's, never a Tanya, never a risk like a Stacy. I liked my girls' acneed, fluorescent rubber bands stretching at the backs of their mouths. You are a motherfucker, I slurred at the fool as a hand-wringing Beth looked on from the couch, some horrified Bonnie waited for her ride. You are nouveau riche, trash with cash. I fed the fool his greatest fear. 
This after a sickening discovery. Photos of some mixed-up kid, an unseemly queen posed in purple panties and the fool's ten-gallon hat. What does that make you, the fool shot back, you without a pot of your own to piss in? Or maybe I didn't really say those things, not out loud. Maybe this time there was not a Beth or a Bonnie present. It was only the fool on the couch, on his back, boots in the air. A bag of peas on his face to soothe the eyeball I scratched with a tossed Polaroid. Maybe the girl was not yet born. It's possible I am remembering things in the wrong order or remembering them out of scale. The last straw had nothing to do with one of the fool's women or one of the fool's men. It had to do with me, of all people, and something small that I did, stretched out of proportion in the fool's fool mind. It makes no difference to the fool that my daughter is on the honor roll. He doesn't care that she's reading above grade level, that she's scoring off the charts in math. For all he knows, she's the oldest in her young class. There is no water cycle. There are no South American capitals. It's not his problem that she tells horrifically violent, psychologist-approved stories. He doesn't mind when she makes ridiculous demands, when she is entitled and nasty in the throes of some demonic tantrum. For all he knows, she has regressed steadily backward since he went away. Maybe she babbles now, gurgles like someone born without a tongue, someone who has never learned to speak. In the deep woods, not all the animals are so nice. Don't forget there are panthers hiding out here. They are skinny and pissed off. They are coiled in the springs like furry, pissed-off springs, ready. It occurs to me to be more careful about the language I use around a child. Mimicry, though, it's akin to intelligence, is it not? She's mad at me because I've spilled, drenched my sherry hand, gotten the carpet wet. I'll clean it up later with all the rest of it. I'll take the kitchen scissors upstairs to the vacuum cleaner and cut the yarn. Do that part at least. I've decided that will be my first step, should I choose to take it. Deep in the woods, blah, blah, blah. My manners are the first thing to go. I try to keep tabs, but I am never drinking from a can. I keep track in my own way. Am I blinking regularly? Can I feel my mouth? Sherry is a pretty drink that warms up the light around your face. No harm can come, I remind my daughter. The trick to paying attention is nodding at intervals, occasional squinting, a rutted brow. Children are the easiest. They do not care that you are listening, only that they are speaking. My daughter's teachers used to ask me to decode her. Muchba was lunchbox. Crean was crayon. There was pock pock goo. A mother should know. We have such a tough time, they would say. Nothing but garble from this one here. About the last straw. It's true that I dropped dirty diapers out of the window and down into the bushes over a brief period of weeks. It wasn't as if I dropped them onto the front lawn, and at least I wasn't leaving our daughter to stink in some corner of her crib. They landed on the side of the house, out of sight from the street. Obviously, I intended to retrieve the mess at a later date, but the fool took my pile personally, called it a grisly discovery, said it was proof of a real problem. 
Perhaps the fool broke only one light bulb, or perhaps I broke it myself. Perhaps the bulb burned out on its own, or I changed it before it had a chance to pop. Deep in the woods, the cowboy must defeat the final enemy, an inky shape that has been looming this whole time, ruining everything, chasing him away. The shape descends from the dark sky, retching and twisting, singing a terrible song. She brings her inky face close to the cowboy's face. Her eyes are black, sparkly discs. Her teeth are really pointy. She smells like somebody trying to hide their true smell with a bunch of perfume. Her hair is in a long braid and her bangs are just kind of flat on her head. Her glasses are not so good on her face and she stumbles around a lot, spilling things. I get it, I say. I see what you did there. Every mother rages sometimes. This is called parenting. The girl is bossy, her hand on my mouth to stop me from drinking and spoiling her ending in that order. My daughter has trouble making friends, of course, capers or no. Deep in the woods, the cowboy is triumphant, the inky shape slain. A skulk of foxes escorts him home, where at long last he is reunited with his daughter. She has been waiting for him, all alone, all this time. He hugs her so tight, makes her alphabet soup. He sets up a tent in the living room. He listens to her stories, really listens. Later, he tucks her in, traces a cursive message on her bare back when she can't sleep. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Outside on the porch, the cowboy has set out big bowls of food and water to feed his friends. The inky shape is elsewhere, a slushy mess on the forest floor. The pissed off panthers bounce out of their trees, quick to slurp up her blood. Deep in the woods, a story is not over, in my humble opinion. The inky shape, that terrible bitch, she comes back from the dead. She researches schools, makes doctor's appointments. She pays parking tickets and does the laundry. She enjoys a drink now and then, okay? But the inky shape is not committing any egregious errors. For example, she is not getting laid. No men are coming in and out, no men at all, ever. She buys organic fruits and vegetables. She really does clean sometimes. She keeps her hands to herself, and it is so hard. With a dog, you can overtake them. The trainers will tell you this. It's to establish authority, to maintain control. You can't do this with a child. Hold their arms at their sides. Sit lightly on their chests. Experts agree. The cowboy will never come home, but he is not wandering, not lost. He is still in Texas, not even very far away. He commands a crew on a derrick in the Gulf, the big empty hulk of his operation deep underwater. He doesn't need the job. He has the kind of money that begets money, but he enjoys living out there. There are miles of handrail, a thousand light bulbs. Sometimes, to boost team morale, he hosts an open mic. He day sleeps and plays ping pong, puts checks into the inky shape's account. He's in touch for practical reasons, but he has no interest or intent to return. He's made this clear. Very soon, he will be dead in a painful, mundane way. A ruptured this, a burst that and even more funds will arrive. How noble of him to provide such a hefty inheritance. 
I'm still working out that last part. Right now, it's more wish than plausible ending. It's quite possible my daughter will disagree with this version altogether. She might say that I put words into her mouth. Show me a mother who hasn't. Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. The story you heard on today's show is called Foxes, and it was written and read by Kimberly King Parsons. You can find this story alongside many others in Kimberly's book, Blacklight. I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. Our theme song is by Luis Guerra, and our show art is by Teddy Blanks. Incidental music from Blue Dot Sessions. If you're a member of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon, you can hear an interview I did with Kimberly about the inspiration for this story. Please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits today. It's just $5 a month at patreon.com slash familyghosts. We couldn't make Family Ghosts without the Kindred Spirits, and we appreciate your support so much. And if you don't have the means to become a Patreon supporter, no problem. Please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between Family Ghost episodes, and if you like the HBO series Six Feet Under, check out Fisher Family Ghosts. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of the series and then talk about the ways the narrative, characters, and themes affect our approach to storytelling and how we think about our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. We'll be back with a brand new episode of Family Ghosts in two weeks. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.